everybody. This is Bevan. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. I've said my name three times. It's time to start the show. Today, my guest is my friend, Sonia Mendoza, who is an organizer. Um, she's been doing anti-racist work for a super long time. Uh, she's been doing activist and movement work since she was 18 years old. Uh, so she has a pretty great career of being, I mean, and this is not just like in her personal life. She's also a professional dog walker. So she actually holds down a full job plus and running her own business plus doing a lot of movement work. So I thought she was a super great resource to share with everybody. Um, Something that I think we need to remember in this time um, of, you know, just like coronavirus pandemic, um, social uprising uh, in pursuit of justice and social economic and political equality for all people is um, that everybody has to play a part and that each of us has a a sphere of influence. So um, I think it's oftentimes super easy to think like, oh, you know, like I don't know enough or I I can't do this. I can't have these conversations. But you know what? You know more than a lot of the people you know, because you usually fall kind of in the center um, of a spectrum politically of the people you know. So there may be people who um, you know who are way more radical than you. And then there's probably people you know who you are the most radical person they know, right? So it's super important to use your positioning as a human in the world to utilize the social capital you have with other folks because they trust you and they know you as a human to um, advance the the work of Black women. Like Sonia says this again and again in this podcast, and I echo it as well, that Black women are leading this charge and this movement. We're amplifying their work and their words. And, um, you know, here I'm just trying to provide some resources for for white folks, you know, to like step in this and do this imperfectly and just try, have these conversations. You can see my last episode, episode 40, for more um, info about how to have uncomfortable conversations. But I think this one, uh, this episode is going to give you some framework for abolitionist work and what it looks like to defund the police, why we're defunding the police and some sort of basics about that, um, as well as, you know, something that's very near and dear to my heart, which is uh, advancing the rights of sex workers and um, sex worker decriminalization. Um, it's uh, it's funny because I think back a lot to my experience in law school and um, I knew by about halfway through my second year of law school that I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. Um, and I remember now very clearly why I made that decision. And it was because I took criminal procedure. And I remember sitting in that lecture hall and I realized like probably about a third of the way through the semester, oh my goodness, we are literally just playing chess with people's lives and liberties. This is so fucked up. And I just like, I I, I didn't love the law. Like I didn't go to law school because I loved it. I went to law school because people told me I would be a good lawyer. Um, so it's, uh, it's not like I had a, a real idealization about it, but I just like kind of saw it for what it was. And by then I felt like, you know, this was yet another decision I made in my life that was based on money. But I thought that I was like too far into the degree to turn around. Um, And, you know, we make our decisions as we do. But anyway, all that to say, I got into sex worker rights organizing because it was the thing that like really, when I was in law school, it stood out to me as like the that my area of focus or something that really like mattered to me. And it's funny because it's, I didn't enter the movement as a lawyer. I entered the movement with the skills I had from my real estate law career, which was spreadsheets and solving problems. And so I took on that role within an organizing, uh, 
advocacy group, uh, the Desiree Alliance. And so it's really cool in this time to see people I know from sex worker organizing who um, have been working to support uh, trans people of color um, because that's a very intersectional, you know, overlap. And it's great to see people um, seeing some, some financial contributions coming from this movement and from the amplification. So things are working and things are happening. Um, and we can continue to look to the most marginalized and center their experiences to make our everything more accessible. Everything improves when we center the most marginalized people. That is just a fundamental truth. So um, I hope that this episode helps you kind of get some clarity or just answer some questions, or if you have more questions or anything like that, like, please feel free to send me an email. Um, I'm bevinsparty at gmail.com. And I can also connect you to Sonia also, who is uh, willing to be a resource. And also we talked about, she had a bunch of links. We talked throughout the episode about these links that she has for more information. So I'm going to put them together in a post. Um, and I'm going to link to that from the show notes. So you'll be able to find that. And that's going to be at, um, on a blog post at queerfatfem.com to support this. Cause it's actually, it's very long, the thing she sent me. So I want to make sure that it has the space um, and the linkages. So anyway, um, I hope this is helpful. I hope that um, whatever you're doing, like you just understand that as much as you may not think that you have influence, you have influence and you know, people and, and you know, people who you know of people. So there are people in your life that you can be talking to um, and also just get involved. Like, just devote 10 minutes a day to moving forward justice, like whether that's making phone calls or connecting with people, having hard conversations or flyering or going to protests or whatever. Like it's this consistent movement that is going to change things. Um, if we keep having these outrage spikes, like we have been like Ferguson or, um, you know, the Rodney King riots and things like that, these like little spikes that doesn't create sustainable movement. But what does create sustainable movement is people who refuse to let it go and just create you know, an ongoing work out of this instead of just like continuing to put a bandaid over a gushing wound. Uh, we have to do better. We have to rearrange and reimagine our systems. Um, and to make a hard right turn, because I still need to talk about how you can support this podcast. Uh, the best way to support the podcast is through my Patreon page. Patreon is a membership support site that allows creators like me to be supported by folks whose work, uh, Whose, whose work matters to them. I don't know, whatever. Um, it's a membership support site. I have a lot of uh, tiers that you can choose from. Every dollar counts. So like two bucks, you get in the door. Um, there's a, an exclusive podcast episode of minis, uh, mini episodes about self-care. Uh, there's Reiki healings, there's meditations. Um, and I answer uh, questions in there for folks who want to pick my brain about things. Um, there's also... Uh, for 25 bucks a month, you can join my weekly online aerobics class. Um, and I just added, so usually there's five classes available and now suddenly there's six because I got a request to have a dedicated chair video in all of my video series. So there are now six up, six uh, workouts available at any one time. So you can just pick some stuff from a menu. Um, and I'm kind of a, I'm an all levels teacher. So I, I, definitely support folks doing movement from a chair. Minimum participation is just watching and cheering along, which you've totally got. And um, basically my, my aerobics is for anyone who feels left behind by mainstream movement, um, who's ever been called too much, too fat or felt too awkward to dance. Um, and in fact, it was through Facky Dance Party, through teaching Facky Dance Party that I met my friend Sonia, uh, who was a regular and then she became a friend. 
And, um, but it's just, it's the best. I love getting to teach out aerobics. And I honestly think that it's a, a great support of justice work because uh, movement is such important self-care. And especially when we're dealing with things that are so, I mean, it's literally life and death stuff. Like this is us getting a little uncomfortable, but like, so our black friends don't die. So that's like, or get murdered by the police, I should say, like more, more accurately. So, but, but doing the things that care for your body, that nourish you, self-care is so important. And that is how we create sustainable movements is that we have activists out there who are caring for themselves and also caring for the movement. So um, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-K-D-P. And um, every dollar counts. And I just really appreciate your support. And I appreciate you tuning in to this podcast. And just imagine that you're on my porch with me and Sonia, and you're pulling up your favorite uh, childhood blanket around your legs and just listening in and connecting. Love you so much. Sonia, welcome to the podcast. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my friend Sonia is an organizer um deep 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 in the like movements that everyone's talking about these days um you've been doing this work since like the early aughts right when you were in dc yeah um i i like to say like you know i identify as an anti-racist and i have for a really long time and i've been doing anti-racist work both internally and externally since i was 18 years old uh, which is like when I I arrived um, in Washington, D.C. <laughs> um, and just general, doing other general organizing, grassroots organizing work um, since I got to D.C. and became politicized, um, which happened to be uh, like two weeks before 9-11 happened. So I got politicized very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing actually how these like big world events become catalysts for real change and for real opportunity to like dig into movement work and um, <clears throat> really make some change. And what I'm so excited about what's happening right now is I think we have a real opportunity for momentum um, in movements because a lot of um, momentum is just like the kind of thing that depends on circumstance. And it depends on consistency. And so your, your, as in each of our individual roles in maintaining momentum of movements is to keep moving forward. And one of the best ways to maintain momentum is to stay uncomfortable. Because like when you have a big event like 9-11 or, you know, George Floyd, all of these things like um, they, they create anger and ra- outrage. And those are short-lived emotions. Like you can't stay in an outrage all the time because if you actually just open your eyes to the world around you, you would always be outraged. And our human bodies, our little mammalian bodies are not ready to handle that level of consistent outrage. So you have to figure out how to like stay, like keep the, the heat on, keep the momentum going, but also be caring for yourself throughout this. So I, I love you as a person to teach about this because you've been doing this work. You're like, what, 30, how old I'm are you? 36. 36. <laughs> so it's 18 years. So you've had half your life politicized and half your life not. And you didn't give up. Like a lot of people get politicized as an early angry young adult. I think a lot of us have been angry young adults. Um, 
but like kind of burn out on it because like you end up going into the muggle workforce and you need to like conform to your coworkers and all of that stuff. And so this is like an opportunity for people, I think, to get politicized and to do movement work, which is really just having hard conversations. See my last episode about having hard conversations, but like also informing yourself and staying aware and awake to what's going on so that you can, because probably you're the most in, in your circle of friends, you're probably the middle ground politically, right? Like every person is probably middle ground politically based on the friends they have, but there's people for whom you are the most radical friend. And so you staying informed and educating other folks helps other folks also create and continue their momentum. That makes sense. Yeah, and I gotta say like, the thing, I think the thing that gives me momentum as like a tired organizer who, um, takes in so much news every single day about specifically about the immigrant justice um, movement and you know right now a lot about um, you know police brutality um, is that like there right now like there's wins all the time like we are really like in this moment to convince people to defund the police and like dismantle the like Milist, like the like military state, <laughs> this racist military state that we live in, yeah, and like people having so many different conversations about that, and um, you know, it started with Minneapolis, which you know it started way before George Floyd in Minneapolis. Like there were organizers in Minneapolis working on like redefining community safety and before all of this stuff happened with George Floyd and they were able to get the Minneapolis city council city council to dismantle the police department so that stuff like this stuff happening all the time like you know there's so much bad news but every time there's like a win it just gasses me up for like two weeks <laughs> it like it's like what I use to like keep going um like this week you know what we're working just to give a little bit of like what is happening in los angeles right now is uh what we're working on here is defunding the lapd and adopting a people's budget um which is a thing where the people city council and black lives matter la have been working on a participatory budget system um where they pulled like 24,000 Angelinos about like what they want the city to be spending money on um, instead of the cops. Uh, and uh, this week, uh, one of two city council members introduced a motion to for all non-emergency calls to not be answered by the police mm. um, in Los Angeles. So, it's not, you know, a perfect win, but it's something and like, it's a reason to keep going. And I just use that stuff and the idea that like, we can get more people, we need more people. <laughs> um, so I use that and like my conversations of like bringing people into this movement to like dismantle the racist police state to keep me going. That's awesome. I love, and I love that there are more wins happening right now because there's more public outrage. And so like, I think we had that perfect powder keg of like a lot of months of quarantine and people having time on their hands 
who like saw something outraged and then were able and had capacity to go out and like be visible and do the protesting and the calling and all of the things because there's so many things to do like it's not activism isn't just about showing up with a sign and getting tear gassed although that is how it looks for some like it's a lot of things like you do a ton of organizing from your house yeah and i have to say like this people this people's budget la and black lives matter la has turned along with like a bunch of other like um advocacy organizations in los angeles that that helped with this participatory budget making like they have turned literal thousands of people in los angeles into like they've activated people in los angeles to call into city council meetings and demand a people's budget and a defunding of the police department so literally you can go on you can like you know they're all like online now because of coronavirus like you can listen to city council meetings online and you can also call in because you can't actually go to a city council meeting right now you can click on a link listen to a city council meeting and listen to an hour's worth of public comment of just people commenting on how we need to defund the police department and adopt a people's budget so like people are being <laughs> radicalized and like learning about local politics and how their their tax dollars are being spent uh on mostly the lapd because this budget which is being worked on and reworked right now uh, because all of the city councilors refused to sign it. The mayor is the one who made it, uh, was trying to give three billion, with a B, dollars to the police. Three for billion. For the LAPD for a year? Yes, for the 2021 fiscal year. Wow, oh my God. Yeah, the um, the charts that K-Town for All, which is this like homelessness ag advocacy organization made of, of like what they're giving to the LAPD compared to things like Parks and Rec and, you know, everything like, you know, street cleaning, street repair, all of that kind of like other things that cities spend the money on, like not even like the bar graph is like giant <laughs> and then everything else is so tiny. It's yeah. so bonkers. It's crazy. It is bonkers. And I love that people are kind of waking up to this because budgets really show your priorities. Like that's, um, it's, uh, I hate to quote Joe Biden at this time, <laughs> but he said it and he's, it's so smart. He said it like 10 years ago. He's like, show me your budget and I'll show you my, I'll, I'll show you your priorities because people will say their priorities all the time and politicians love to say their priorities. But if you actually look at the budgets they create, that actually shows, I mean, I don't know who's, how Eric Garcetti got elected and how much it had to do with the LAPD, but it seems like it had to do a lot if it's a $3 billion budget. And that jail, like that jail was on, um, the LA County jail was on like This American Life like five, six years ago about being like super violent and corrupt and racist and all of the things. And yet it's- Yeah, the it's still, they're still, and you know, like they're still putting people in jail. You know, like we tried to get, uh, we, people very quickly passed some laws, like forced, um, forced the LA city jail, like forced the, basically forced the jail to like, or cops to not being, not arresting and taking people to jail during coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and they were trying to get around that. They were trying, still trying to circumvent 
And, you know, because people don't have money for bail, like just finding people or, or writing them tickets and not bringing them to jail. And they were still trying to, the district attorney was still trying to circumvent it even during coronavirus when no one, literally not one person should be in jail right now. Wow. I mean, because jail's basically a death sentence at this point. This is, I just want to extrapolate that so people understand that because of coronavirus, you're in a position where you're far more vulnerable to death from just being around other people. And yeah, like socially, in- social distancing is impossible in prison, yeah. in jail. Oh. Not possible. Um, will you talk, uh, tell us more about abolition and politics and all of the things that you want to teach that um, you think folks out there can learn to be empowered and help sort of juice them up for whatever their role is in the movement? Yeah. Um, so when we're talking about abolition, um, we're talking about living in a world free from prisons and free from uh, police. And really, we're also talking about living in a world free from the military, from military and like militarized, any type of militarized like intervention anywhere. Um, and, you know, when I talk about it, abolition, I talk about abolishing borders too but we can I mean I, that's a conversation <laughs> I think well I fully agree I was actually just talking to a friend yesterday we were both standing on the border of Syria and Israel like four years ago hearing bombs go off and I was watching these birds fly across the border and I was watching these bees that were around and I was like oh animals don't care about borders borders are made up humans just make these things up to make us quote feel better and feel safe but in fact it's just drawing lines over people's bodies and um, creating systems of power that aren't even relevant anymore. In a global society where we have a tool as powerful as the internet, we don't need borders the way like people, I mean, we didn't, we never needed them in the first place, but you know, I don't, I don't think, I think now's our, our opportunity to just put everything on the table. I think we can scratch everything and, and start from scratch, but. Um. Absolutely. And like, I have been, you know, people who are steeped in this work have been really awesome about um, pushing back, um, pushing back at people who are advocating for police reform, which has been a thing that's been done multiple times in this country and black people are still getting uh, indiscriminately murdered by cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, like, I, I believe like 20, uh, people were killed by cops in between like the time, George, like not having to necessarily to like add a protest, but like in between the time George Floyd protests started and now like 20 more people have been murdered by the cops. Wow. So when we talk about abolition, like really what we're talking about is living in a world free from violence and harm and building that world ourselves and like having the confidence to know that we can build this world for ourselves. It's going to take a lot of like fucking up. Um, Like we're going to fuck up a lot, but we're also going to like succeed and um, just continuing to push for, continuing to push people towards the idea that like we can live in this world, like we can live in a world free from violence and harm. And the way that that starts is that 
uh, by defunding um, racist, violent institutions that have always harmed Black people. Um, and the reason why I think um, abolition is so important in this moment and like why people are pushing it and why we should be reading and doing and talking about it is that it really is um, a philosophy and a thought that was uh, written about first and pushed first by black women. And so like when you're, when we're talking about abolition and we're talking about like abolishing the police, we're talking about like freeing people from pris prisons um, and the philosophy of like where all this came from, like what we're really talking about is like, <laughs> sorry, I just lost my train of thought. What we're, what we're really talking about is listening to black women. Yeah. It's the, it, it can be that That's simple. It. <laughs> it can. It can absolutely be that simple. Yeah. And when we're centering our most marginalized people, we have the greater, I mean, this is, I've seen this across so many disciplines in law, in healthcare, in so many areas. But if you center the needs of the most marginalized, and here we're talking, let's say black trans women, maybe disabled black trans women, right? Like just center the needs of the most marginalized people. Absolutely. It includes everybody. That's the most amazing thing is everybody wins. When you center the needs of the most marginalized people, everyone wins. And it is, it baffles me. Like to me, like as just a very logical Capricorn, I'm just like, duh. But like, I, for some reason, like change doesn't happen unless you really just keep pushing that point forward again and again and again and utilizing these frameworks created by black women. Okay, keep going, abolition. Yeah, and I think, you know, just to like, you know, reiterate that like one more time in a different way, like, and in terms of like people talking about reform and, you know, like talking about police reform, Joe Biden has talked about police reform, not that we ever need to be talking, <laughs> we keep talking about <laughs> Joe Biden, but, which we don't need to be doing, but like. I mean, vote, might as well vote, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. like what, when people are talking about reform, like intrinsically police reform is anti-black and anti-black woman women yeah because we've tried a we've tried it before and it's never worked like it really hasn't worked there's a lot of history um you can find it in a lot of different places i can suggest some things a little bit later but yeah i mean it's just like 21st century obama did it too he tried to do it too it, it failed miserably obviously because we're here Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like when we're, when people are pushing or talking about reform and not talking about like the whole banana, AKA like defunding the police, like fundamentally that is anti-black as well. So like, because abolition comes from black women, like the thought of black women. <laughs> so like, we need to be listening to black women in this moment and um abolition is what they're calling for um and so i would consider you know like just everyone who's listening to this to start like reading up on it i can give like a ton of recommendations and i will like we can talk about them i don't know if you want to talk about them at the end or whatever okay. but let's talk about them at the end and then i'll also put a link in the show notes um, and if it's a ton of stuff, then I might just put a link to like a web page and just have a web page. But that way people can keep getting 
educated and read books and and listen to to folks they need to listen to yeah totally i can give like i'll probably give you like a few like pretty concise uh recommendations just like to read and or to listen to last week um Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, who is was one is one of the leaders of like like foremost thought leaders on prison abolition, and also is from California, um, did a whole podcast about it, and it's very accessible. Oh, great! Um, so, and it's in two parts. One part is like almost an hour, and the the second part is like half an hour. So it's pretty short too. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, and and what she talks about and, like, what, what people talk about in terms of, like, you know, abolition, like, a lot of the work of abolition is, like, creating relations, new relationships with people, yes. you know, and, like, trying to figure out, like, what justice is beyond, like, the punitive form of justice that, that the state has decided to um rain down upon people for doing violent crimes but also for doing poverty crimes because like half of the people in jails and prisons in this country are like in jails and prisons for it's 10 million people by the way um in jails and prisons for non-violent crime aka being poor or being black or being brown yeah so yeah, I mean, it's really about like creating relationships and understanding and transforming what justice means to us um, outside of like the punitive forms of justice that the state has chosen to inflict upon people. It's also important to mention too that I think a lot of our prison population, like I, I think if you haven't watched 13th on Netflix, go watch it. So you'll understand like the war on drugs and how that kind of created a schools to prison pipeline. But also there's like another subset of people who are in prisons and jails because they have untreated mental health issues. And yeah. I think we live in such a sick society that like not only do we have people who like, I, I believe in neurodiversity. I think that's part of our human species evolving. Uh, but I also think that a lot of mental illness and mental health stuff comes from systemic oppression, trauma, and things that are just like systems repeating and repeating and repeating and landing in people's bodies and in people's minds. But because Ronald Reagan defunded the mental health infrastructure that we had um, and closed all these hospitals and stuff like that. So that's another defunding that a Republican did to just, and it's not even Republicans and Democrats because everybody is pretty bad anyway. It's like systems like trying to stay in control and give money to your friends and like you know, the prison industrial complex exists because people have friends who are, are politicians, right? And lobbies and big money and all of that stuff. And the way our system works, like our politicians spend a big chunk of their time. I would say a third is what I've heard from Congress people about how much time they have to spend of their day fundraising. And that's just literally so they can keep their job. So it's, it's, it's horrifying that like we have these elected representatives who aren't even representing our interests because they're busy out there getting money from people who have bigger bigger and more important interests to them than us, right? So this is where our people power is like accelerating. But anyway, a lot of our prison population has to do with defunding other programs that we had before. And then they're just like trying to continue to just shuffle people's lives into this system. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not really, it's it's fairly old news in Los Angeles because at this point, a lot of people have written news stories about it. But, and now like, you know, maybe it's a little bit different because they have depopulated the jail, the downtown jail a little bit um, because of coronavirus. But like, you know, a, a couple years ago, people were writing stories about how like two thirds of the people in downtown jail had like mental health issues. And it was basically, you know, a place to put people with mental, <laughs> untreated mental health issues. Yeah. Two thirds. Two thirds. In like one of the most, like, and again, I'm just going to keep referencing this because I listened <laughs> to it before I even moved to Los Angeles. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this jail is still here. And uh, anyway. Um, okay, keep going. So let's talk about abolition. What does it look like to just live in a place where we're reducing or removing harm and violence? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what we're doing now and like in terms of organizing and like what people are continuing to do, uh, like since this movement has like gotten so much traction because of George Floyd protests and everything that's happened and like that continues to happen. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a really stark, it's an interesting and like stark reality when, you know, over two weeks of people across the country, like hundreds of thousands of people across the country are protesting and yet the cops are still indiscriminately like shooting people and killing them for no reason. <laughs> like what a, what a world, right? Like, yeah. so I guess, you know, like what we're, what a lot of people are talking about and like having really like interesting and, and tough and like, uh, conversations and pushback about right now or like you know there's always questions about like um like well if someone's breaking into your house like who do you call or you know like people are like who do you call if <laughs> who do you call if you get raped which not the police ever because <laughs> yeah, the police will probably just I mean I hate to say it but the police are going to rape you too you know what I mean like it's the worst absolutely like because they I mean isn't it some I saw some statistic like ten percent of sexual assaults happen um, carcerally like either from police or from uh, like people being in prison people you know what I mean like that. Yeah, this alternative news organization in LA called LA Taco. Um, yeah, I. Oh my God, I was written up in LA Taco. Oh, I didn't you're realize they're an alternative news organization. I mean, they're like a new. I mean, I guess I would call them them alternative because they are called LA Taco. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call them alternative any other way. They have good news, but they just published this article that was basically just a list of every single woman giving testimony who had been a, like about how they were sexually harassed by a, a police officer uh while being arrested at one of the protests in los angeles so it's just like a long list of short testimonies of like sexual harassment that has been that was perpetrated by cops during uh arrests uh during the george floyd protests in la wow so like we're 
really pushing back on these conversations of safety. And I think like a lot of, and I'm talking about this a lot with my Jewish friends that I started a little group with called Jews for Black Lives. And we're really trying to like engage Jewish folks, um, white Jewish folks, especially um, in talking about safety and um, what it means to dismantle white supremacy, like in this moment as Jews. Um, just like pushing back against the notion that things like that the things that the carceral state chooses to give us, like cops and prisons, um, actually keep us all safe. Um, because the majority of us are not safe. Maybe like if you're you're a really rich person who like lives in, in Brentwood or Beverly Hills, like maybe the cops, you think the cops keep you safe, but pretty much not for anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to like, yeah, I guess like just challenging sort of like our radical notions of like what we think safety is as well is super important. Um, I mean, for Jewish people, it's it's going to be really complicated because we're very like, obviously like the Jewish community is not a monolith. So I don't want to talk and like, there's a lot of really amazing um, Jewish folks that are like doing this radical work right now. But like, a lot of our safety is like tied up in this like victimhood about, you know, the Holocaust and remembering the Holocaust and like, um, a lot of our safety is tied up in like security people having security guards with guns at synagogues because of synagogue shootings. Um, and, you know, Jewish institutions being tied to police, policing institutions um, as well. Um, and understanding that like, you know, the co that they're like across the country, um, local police organizations um, send their cops to Israel to get trained by the Israeli Defense Forces. So like for Jews, it's going to be like a lot harder <laughs> than for a lot of other other white folks uh, because we really have believed and like, like have this like intrinsic belief that like our safety is tied up in armed um like police and you know having that around us so but yeah i mean i think i think it's like understanding like safety in this moment and like how your neighbors can keep you safe and what that means and like talking to your neighbors about safety and like you know sort of like challenging like the role of policing like in in your own personal life is a super important thing to do in this moment. Tell me more about like neighbor work. Like what can individual folks do like with and around their neighbors to create these safety webs? Cause I think, I think we need to be talking about um, envisioning for uh, our own resilience if we were to lose the internet, you know what I mean? And I think our neighborhoods are key in this. And I think the coronavirus has kind of prepared us like, cause we've started to be more insular and, and connected to our neighbors. Um, but like, tell me more about like working with your neighbors to create webs of liberation. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done like a ton of work, but like, I'll give you a, like a little bit of an example of like a larger and, and this is kind of like a national example. Cause it, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen in Los Angeles, but like 
a larger idea of like people working with neighbors to keep each other safe uh, from the cops is like I'm on the planning committee of the Koreatown Popular Assembly, which is a rapid response network that responds to ice sightings in Koreatown. Um, so when- And ICE, and, just for people who don't know what ICE is. Yeah, it's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they're the ones that like arrest people and, and send them to jail for um, not having papers, for being undocumented. Yeah. So what we do is uh, we train rapid responders to be able to spot ICE because often they um, aren't like in uniforms. Um, they like dress in plain clothes and yada yada. So we train people. And then we have a hotline you can call. So, and we, we also, we also like think that because ICE does raids, but they also just like cops, like think that they can hang around sometimes, but we treat every ICE sighting like a potential raid because we believe that like our community members are less safe when ICE is around, uh, whether undocumented or not, but mostly if you're undocumented. So uh, we train these rapid responders and we have a hotline. And if you see ICE in Koreatown or in one of the surrounding neighborhoods, um, you can call our hotline and we'll send out a rapid responder or multiple rapid responders to um, verify the sighting. And then once it is verified, we will disseminate the information to the community um, to know to like stay away from that area because ICE is there. So this is like a larger example of neighbors helping neighbors because we are all like, or it's gotten bigger, but like, you know, we mostly serve Koreatown and our, most of our volunteers live either in or around Koreatown. Technically, I don't live in Koreatown. I live in Filipino town, <laughs> but um, yeah. And I, I guess like talking I, I am trying uh, more to just directly talk to my neighbors about safety. And I, I don't have a ton of neighbors. I live on a really weird street. <laughs> um, I live across the street from a hospital. So um, yeah, it's a non-emergency hospital, so I don't get the sirens. But um, yeah, I don't have like a ton of like directly next to me neighbors, but I do, like, I am starting to try to have conversations with people around, like, what it means to not call the police when you're in trouble, and maybe, like, you can call me, you know, or maybe, like, you know, like, what is a, what are, what are alternatives to calling the police, and also there's a lot of, like, Instagram content um, out there right now about alternatives to calling the police, which is great. Um, so yeah, it does, it does really start with you. Like it literally starts with everyone just like talking to their neighbors. Um, another thing, another resource I would, um, point out for this is, uh, transformative justice, uh, which is a practice and a philosophy of like that fits into abolition and is a part of abolition of like figuring out how to hold people accountable who have done harm mm -hmm. um, without getting the state involved. So without getting like cops or any, or legal or like anything like that involved. Mm -hmm. um, and part of 
uh, one of these uh, transformative justice um, things that has uh, come out of this movement is uh, the concept of pods, which I'm a part of a pod. Um, they're not necessary. They're all people in LA, but and they're all friends of mine, but they're not um, necessarily my like direct neighbors because LA is giant. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like a group of people that checks in with each other. Um, checks in with each other for emotional well-being, for physical well-being, and also holds each other accountable um, for their behaviors towards others. Uh, so this is like, and you can do kind of like work within your pod. Um, there's like materials. I can, I can try to pull it up. Um, so I have the, there's like some, some uh, literature and stuff on this if people want to work on it themselves. Um, the stuff is out there like you can kind of like I went to like a, a in-person workshop long ago when that was happening Remember when? Uh, so I got some like sheets <laughs> to fill out about like who would be in your pod and like just trying to like imagine like creating smaller to larger networks of people who are holding each other accountable for harm outside of the carceral state mm, I love that and I know there have been some like grassroots like transformative justice things that have been that have worked and some that have not worked like with like friends I have who've like dealt with like sexual assault and activist communities and things like that where like I think people have been trying to take this work very seriously for a long time both like with some success and some flops which like is very human to like try yeah. something and have it not work right away you know but it's like definitely it's I gotta say like it's definitely like I haven't done like too much work on it and like my pod is like kind of a hilarious friend group so we do a lot <laughs> of like emotional check-ins and like not a lot of anything else right now because well there's not that much to do right now since everyone is still technically quarantining yeah <laughs> um but uh it is, it's truly like, you know, as someone who like comes from similar spaces as you, but opposite, i.e. like punk spaces where people were being called out all the time mm -hmm. for rape and sexual assault and like nobody like, nothing like, happens. yeah, either nothing happens or the person gets shunned and they fucking move to a, t a different town and like rapes more people. Exactly. Like, I mean, I mean, that's the it's thing. It's like, like it's we tiresome. have- it is tiresome. It's hard to, I mean, I, I believe in this work and I believe it can happen, but I think we just need more, you know, we need more leadership in it. We need more like people who are willing to do the learning and the application and like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we had like a universal living wage where people could just utilize their time to make the world better instead of like trying to trade their time for money so they can pay rent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, trying to get unemployment right now so yeah. <laughs> for my 40 hours a week of of unpaid grassroots activist work yeah, exactly um yeah I mean it's definitely important and like I think people are so afraid like you know I I just like I've spent the past two weeks two and a half weeks or so almost three weeks like figuring out this Jews for Black Lives stuff with a bunch of my Jewish friends who, some of which 
do immigrant justice work with me, some who just like other ancillary like Jewish folks in, in Los Angeles that are like plugged into uh, grassroots organizing. And like, I was so surprised about like how terrified people were to fuck up. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, like it's gonna happen. Like we're, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna screw up, and you just have to like live with that and move on. <laughs> like, yeah. like we're not gonna get it right every time, and like that's also, and you know, like as a perfectionist Virgo, uh. it took like a really long time for me to like. I mean, I even I still get anxiety about like not doing the right thing. Yeah, you know, but like we're just not gonna do the right thing like we're just gonna mess up sometimes and like you just gotta sit with that and live with it and move on because we got a lot of work to do (laughs) yeah I mean the thing that I like to like think about in this stuff is like the I have the more I've fucked up the less fear I have of fucking up you know what I mean like and I've like like and and it's and it's all perception too it's like who if you fuck up in private like if you do like if you um if you did something in private and it didn't get filmed and it didn't get disseminated, that's a different level of like quote unquote punishment than like fucking up and being public. Right. And the bigger the actions you're trying to do, the bigger the work, the more you could fuck up, but your fuck up, even on a big scale, even in front of a ton of people. And I say this as someone who is like deeply fucked up in in public multiple times. I still think it's less of a risk than a black person going out jogging. You know what I mean? Who could get shot by the police in the back, like, you know, for being drunk and sleeping in their car. Like that, the, the, the weight of the risk is so different. Um, and I think we need more white people who are willing to fuck up because we need to move these movements forward. Yeah, and I think like, you know, if you're just like a disparate white person in this moment, like who doesn't have like, who's just like searching for like what to do or whatever, besides like read stuff um, and educate yourself. Like actually the answer is really easy, which is like follow black leadership. Like that's what I'm doing, you know, like I'm following black leadership. Oh, here comes a kitty. Um, uh, Yeah. And like, I'm doing, you know, other things like Jews for Black Lives, which is, you know, more about like engaging with white Jewish people, which is, is not, you know, something that is, which is something that's important, but like, doesn't really involve like black leadership. Um, It definitely involves like black Jewish leadership and, and Jews of color leadership, but like engaging personally with, with white Jewish folks, um, on like a very like, you know, one-to-one level doesn't necessarily involve that. But like, yeah, if you're, if you're like a white person right now, who's like struggling, join something and join something that is black led. Like it's not, it's not super hard (laughs) just in terms of like trying to figure out like where you stand in this moment. Like what I do right now is like gas people up, get people psyched about defunding the LAPD um, and adopting a people's budget in LA because that is what Black Lives Matter has asked, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles has asked us to do. So that's what I do, Yeah, you know? And um, like, that's easy. 
Yeah. Like I can, I can do that. <laughs> Besides um, protests. Do you have, um, wait, you were also, let's see. I, want, I, I have so many questions. So do you have uh, examples of like places people can find black led movements that like are relevant to maybe where they live? Like knowing that like this is an international listenership, so it could be anywhere. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know like when this is going to come out, but you know, tomorrow is Juneteenth and I, that's not necessarily international, but like the movement for black lives has like a website about Juneteenth where you can find a protest like anywhere across the country that it's happening. So that's the first place to like plug in, in terms of like, if you're just looking for something, if you're like in the United States and you're just like looking for something local and you don't necessarily know if there's something going on like locally, like they have uh, done one of those things where like it's a map and you can see like every protest that's happening like either on Juneteenth or the weekend of Juneteenth. So, like, if you're just, like, looking for a Black Lives Matter, like, protest, um, or just, like, if Black Lives Matter is, like, operating in your community, like, doing things in your community, that's probably, like, a good start. Let me pull up the website. I can't remember if it's called 619 or Juneteenth. I'm glad um, more people are talking about Juneteenth this year. I'm gonna, this uh, podcast will come out tomorrow morning, so it'll be out for, for and on Juneteenth. Um, what? Sorry, there's something going on with my <laughs> computer right now. Um, I think it's, okay, my internet is going cuckoo crazy. Um, I, all right, let me, let me pull it up for my email. Sorry. Oh, that's all right. We can also like, I mean, I, I, I was just wondering if there was like a thing where people could find stuff locally, like for organizing that's just beyond like protesting, but like, you know, things like calling into the city council, it's a very tangible LA thing to do. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it is, it's a very LA to, thing to do, but, um, yeah, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of you know maybe it's just because I'm so plugged in but there's a like people are kind of calling for like to fund the police like across the country and so there's different there's different ways to hold city councils and mayors excuse me accountable for that stuff um and like in Los Angeles, like right now, um, the budget committee meets every Monday. So like people get on social media and on public comment, like every Monday to like on social media to remind people to make public comment and on, you know, the city council meeting to like listen to folks make public comment on, on the people's budget. So, but that's like the way LA does it. And I know I was looking at, you know, some people, um, I was looking at organizers in DC and it's more email focused, um, like you submitting comment because I don't, I don't know what the city council meetings are about right now, but um, there, but the better way to get plugged in there apparently is to email the mayor and city council members about defunding the MPD. So like there is like generally I would say there is a defund the police 
movement in every large city in the United States right now. Good. Um, so getting plugged in, learning about local politics, you know, like learning about local politics, like this has taught me so much. Like this moment has taught me so much about what my local, like what local politics and like what my council members, like who's in the pocket of the police protective league, all of them, (laughs) which of my city councilors are landlords, uh, five out of 12. Wow. (laughs) Um, So like, just like getting, or six out of 12, maybe including Mitch O'Farrell, my that guy. I can't believe he's a, anyway. Yeah. I'll send you, there's a, he he came to it was it was pretty incredible on monday before the budget uh and finance committee meeting uh the people city council and black lives matter la uh presented their budget to the budget and finance committee which we didn't know like up until like a, like the so it was just this huge thing and you could watch it on um you could watch it live on like the city channel or whatever. So they like went to the council chambers and like someone from Build Power, which is another org in LA, like um, Melina, the woman who like is sort of the spokesperson for uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah, like the spokesperson for like Black Lives Matter LA and a, and a few other folks um, just like presented this budget to the budget and finance committee. And so we got to like watch it in all of its glory um so yeah it's it's just it's about right now it's really about like local politics i would say like across the country like people are really trying to like hold their local their mayors and their city councilors responsible for investing in the health and well-being of their residents and divesting from the militarized police yeah Will you talk a little bit about decriminalizing sex work and how that kind of ties into abolition? Yeah. Um, I was really, when you, when you asked me this question, it was, it was so funny because <laughs> it, you know, like I can, I can tell people like I, I tweet, um, I don't have a personal Twitter account. I just like tweet at LA never again, which is like this, you know, Jewish group that I belonged to that is trying, like, it's, it's like a single issue Jewish group that works in the immigrant justice uh, movement to like abolish ICE and like close down, you know, concentration, like ICE jails. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just tweet from there. And like, I see people that I'm friends with. And I'm like, oh, there's (laughs) no, but they don't know I'm here. (laughs) And I saw my friend Darby uh, on Twitter the other day, she got retweeted because um, many, many years ago when I lived in DC, uh, my friend Darby and a, and a bunch of other folks that I worked with on uh, decriminalizing sex work and like uh, they uh, put out, they did a study and put out a report uh, called the Move Along Report on how um, how uh what was it about sorry i even put it on here how sex work is uh policed um in dc um and um how trans people um who might not necessarily be sex workers uh are criminalized for just hanging around and being on the streets of dc um 
there was this thing uh, in DC at the time uh, called, the police did this thing called prostitution free zones uh, where they would, which is what this study was responding to, um, which was, were these places they would declare prostitution free zones and uh, if people were just kind of like on the streets, no matter who you were, like at this certain time of night, they would just like arrest everyone. Um, so um, different avenues and HIPS uh, and a bunch of other orgs, um, Best Practices Policy Project, a bunch of orgs in DC got together and did a study uh, about how um, trans people and how sex workers are criminalized um, on the streets of DC and how these prostitution free zones um, basically like criminalize trans people, whether they're doing sex work or not. And I think it's also important to note that like when you're a trans person, especially a black trans person, like you probably don't have a home life that's super hospitable, um, especially if you're early in your transition and you don't have safe places to be. So like often hanging out with your friends outside, which I think many of us can relate to, especially when we were teenagers, like kind of not having a place to go. And like, so you're just out on the street hanging out with your friends and then the cops drive by and because of systems of oppression, creating, you know, the only possible way to make money for, for trans women is sex work. Therefore, all trans women are kind of like lumped into this like sex work column, especially trans women of color. And so it becomes just like policing you because of a system that has broken and hurt. And I mean, and not that sex work isn't a, its own field, right? Like it's still work. If people choose to do that, that's okay. But like to be- Yeah, they were arresting profile. people for having condoms. Yes, that too, which is also, because they see the condoms as like intent to, but yeah. you want you want to have- sex workers having condoms like it's the most yeah I mean I, I yeah. volunteered for an organization for over five years <laughs> that like handed out many like thousands and th I don't know how I can't I wish I knew how many condoms at this point hips has handed out because they've yeah. been like in business for like 20 years at this mm -hmm. point but like yeah I mean we would freely hand out multiple condoms to people on the streets like every weekend so but then the cops criminalize like the lawmakers criminalize having condoms as intent to to solicit which then therefore like takes the harm reduction away right like to criminalize having condoms like it's it baffles me that they i mean it's just like it's basically just continuing to create traps for people to go to jail yeah and then forget yeah, about so so this study was done in 2008 and I didn't really have much to do with it, but I had a little bit to do with like just pushing it out into the world. Um, and people were talking about it on social media the other day, which is so great um, because it's a great example of how trans people are just criminalized for being trans. Mm -hmm. um, and like wow, what a great reason to defund the police. Right? Um, because like, it just, I mean, they're all great reasons to defund the police, but like, you know, criminalizing sex work, they often like kind of tie it to trafficking and as though those industries are the same, you know, between consensual sex work and trafficking. And they're not, they're not the same and they're not operated the same. And like, when you have like, decriminalization is also what the the movement leaders like Black 
women in sex work are calling for. It's not legalizing sex work, it's decriminalizing it, which I think is an important distinction. Absolutely. And I also think, you know, like, yeah, like if you're going to talk, like, yeah, decriminalizing sex work and like, you know, the trafficking, talking about trafficking and human trafficking, like, we're going to talk about human trafficking in this moment. Like we need to be talking about rich people that have done it. Uh Jeffrey Epstein, a one person like, like, so like when we talk about like people doing survival or career sex work, as opposed to like, like who are criminalized like every day for doing that stuff, as opposed to people who are doing human trafficking, AKA rich people yes, rich have people. a lot of connections uh-huh. to our government uh-huh. and to a lot of money. Uh-huh. Like, you know, these are two like complicating this, complicating all of this is, is really important in this moment because, you know, I don't think that, the anti-trafficking like you know community really has a a leg to stand on in this moment in terms of like like if you're going to talk about human trafficking like um maybe you need to start talking about the people who uh fund your your movements (laughs) the philanthropists who fund your movements that might indirectly be involved in human trafficking because stuff like that is really about power and money Mm -hmm. and people who are doing survival sex work and career sex work don't have any power yeah or money (laughs) if they had money i mean it's so funny because i've been working in sex worker organizing for a long time i guess at this point almost 10 years and um but like i do a very because i brought my skills to the movement right like i was like well my biggest skills as a real estate lawyer are spreadsheets and budgets and problem solving and so I took on a role of finance officer for sex worker rights nonprofit, um, Desiree Alliance. And I've met so many cool people through this organizing work. It's amazing to see black trans sex work organizers now making like a million dollars, like Kai Andorra show in, um, with Glitz in, um, in Brooklyn fundraising for basically to buy a home for trans women coming out of prison, which like so most great. trans women from prison were like, you know, unfairly incarcerated in the first place, right? So the fact that like, we're, we at least are creating a safety net for some folks to come out and maybe change their lives and have a different outcome. But like, we have to be working systemically, right? But it's just, it's cool to see people who have been working so hard and sacrificing their lives for the movement for so long actually get traction in this time because we're finally talking about like, on a, on a global scale, the importance of listening to and centering black trans lives and yeah Yeah, I need to I need to listen to more but I have to say like the other thing that really gassed me up for this week and a week of like I mean this every week is like filled with a lot of like tough stuff yeah um as well as you know wins but that um march that they had in New York yes I was insane beautiful (laughs) I know every speaker I, I just I just listened to a couple because I like people were just putting them on Instagram but I need to like seek out the entire program but like listening to like 
Black trans women just be extremely unapologetic in this moment. I mean, they've always been extremely unapologetic, but like in this giant sea of like people wearing white, like, you know, at this huge march, like, wow, 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 wow. Like, there's just like nothing more inspiring to me than stuff like that, you know? Yeah, it's good. Um, I don't want to like take up too much time because I want people to like stop listening to us and go listen to Black people. But, um, but I do want to just like dig in because I like to have a little personal connection in every episode and just like, um, I just want to introduce you to folks. I know we like dove right into movement stuff, but like I want to just tell you how I met Sonia. So Sonia uh, and I met because of Fat Kid Dance Party, because of aerobics. Um, you came to your friend's birthday party, uh, which by the way, I think an aerobics class is a fun birthday party. It was a very good idea. Yeah. Three cheers. Big ups to Amra. Thanks, Amra. And then, and then you really loved my class and just kept coming. And eventually we became like friends and then started hanging out a lot. Can I tell you, can I tell you a little secret about that day that yeah. I went to that class? Yeah. I was, it was the weekend of Thanksgiving yeah. because Amra's birthday. That's the only reason why I remember <laughs> birthday I can't remember anyone's birthdays to save my friggin' life except for my mother's and father's but um I was doing you know work that weekend because of Thanksgiving I uh am a full-time well not anymore but I'm a (laughs) full-time professional dog walker and pet sitter I'm now an underemployed professional dog walker and pet sitter thanks corona um (laughs) because of corona yes um but that weekend I had bent a key that I needed to get into a cat's house. And I was like hyperventilating because I could not get into this cat's house. And that was pretty much, your class was pretty much the only time in like 48 hours that I was not hyperventilating because of this key. Wow. (laughs) Wow. It was fine. It turned out fine. I got keyed into the place for like $25. (laughs) But it was also, I was just like, how could this happen on Thanksgiving? Yeah. Um, It's so hard when you have pets' lives in your, in your care and you want to be. The kitties were fine. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um, (laughs) The, so let's see what else. Um, You're queer, you're poly, you're Jewish, you're an organizer, you, what brought you back to LA from DC? Um, mostly like wanting to be closer with family and like it being really hard to like get more than like five days of vacation off at a time to like visit family. And like, I don't know, it's just like, I love the East coast, but that time difference is also like a killer when you're traveling. Mm Mm-hmm. I just felt like every time, like every year I got older, like it was just so difficult to transition whenever I would like come home to like, just like the three hour time difference. Um, And as like a born and bred California girl, I was pretty much done with the weather. (laughs) Yeah. So I was just like, it's, it's done. Although, like, you know, if I had my druthers, like, if we, if we lived in, like, an awesome world where, like, we could do more things that we wanted to, I would definitely, like, lit, try to live in D.C. for a part of the year and then here for a part of the year because I love D.C. Oh, that's great. I think a lot of people, 
I don't know, for me, when I was younger, I used to think like, oh, why would anybody want to move home? I just always thought like you move away. Like, you know what I mean? And it's weird because like so many people I know from high school still live in that same zip code. So like it's, people don't necessarily move away, but like in my consciousness, I was like, oh, you move away. But then like I ended up moving. I now live in my mom's neighborhood and I love it. I love living near my mom. And like, I never thought that that would be true for me. And I think it's interesting to talk to other folks who like made a choice to move back to where their home is and to where their, their family is. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I had that same mindset too. I was like, I'm getting as far away from this place (laughs) when I graduate high school as possible. You know, like I really, I don't know. I don't know if it's like less of a thing here in terms of like, if you're a middle-class to rich kid, like, um, you know, we have, California has such a great UC system, like a really I mean, it's not as affordable anymore as it used to be, but still, like, it's a great, like, college system, and it's probably, like, the best in the country. I mean, we live in a really, I live in a really big state, so, like, people were kind of, like, when I, when I was growing up, people were sort of expected that, like, it was, they're going to go to a Cal State or a UC, because it's a good education, and it's uh, not super expensive, so... I don't know if that's like less of a mindset here than like other places, but I definitely had the mindset of like, I'm peacing out. (laughs) That's real. I mean, and I think some people like don't get the privilege to be able to move away from home, like, cause they don't have resources to set up to like get them there. No, Um, I moved 90 minutes away. I went to a UC. (laughs) So I moved 90 minutes away, but it could have been like hours and hours because I just like at that point, my mom and I were not getting along. So I just, you know, went and did my own thing, went to college and it's, yeah. uh, and then I moved across the country for law school, which was, uh, which I was able to do simply because I financed it, you know, like credit cards got me to law school. <laughs> and then I, I defaulted my dad on that went to law school too. <laughs> <laughs> Although he went to Riverside, so yeah. Or no, San Diego, UC San Diego, but yeah. 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 His best friend from law school spent the year after he's like a very illustrious public defender retired in the public defender system in LA after like over 30 years of defending people. Um, He spent like the year after law school with his best friend gambling in Las Vegas. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. They lived off of their gambling earnings. (laughs) That's uh, risky and impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Two random Mexican dudes just like <laughs> living in Vegas off their gambling earnings. Wow. <laughs> Close Very silly. The 70s. Yeah, that's real. Um, Sonia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and being willing to talk about this and just giving people like some frameworks of understanding things that are kind of popping up and and movements and how you've kind of been in it for a long time. and. Um, I also see you conscientiously doing self-care and I love that about you that like you weave self-care into your activism. Thank you. I mean, what, like ultimately, and like, I, you know, I think we're really on the same page about this is like, we just want more people to like, like more white folks, especially to understand like what it means in this moment to like dismantle white supremacy mm-hmm. um, and to like be anti-racist. Like, what does that mean? 
um, like I just want more people to like get on that train. Mm-hmm. And I want people excited to get, like, I want people to be excited to get on that train um, because it's a liberation train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I just like, I'm always trying to talk to people as much as possible. And like, if you, um, like, I tweet at LA underscore never again. And like, if you want to send me messages about like, and like, if you need anti-racist content, like I would be happy to send you things um because i'm i'm constantly just like taking in anti-racist content and like evaluating it for its like relevance in this moment um so that i can like pass it on to other people um i like consider that as well like a job of mine so like if you need things if you have questions i'm here yay um, I love you so much, Sonia. Uh, I'm going to put your list of resources in the show notes and um, hopefully people can dig in if they want to keep learning and hopefully, they keep learning. but it's learning, it's talking and it's just finding 10 minutes a day to like keep moving the needle of justice forward. It's really Absolutely. like that's sustainable movement. If everybody did that, we would literally change the world in like a month. So absolutely, yeah, totally. I love you. Woo. Okay, wait.